Cast. Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Laura Forkang. And Laura is a best-selling author and interfaith minister who spent over 25 years as a prominent career and business coach. Her valuable insights have been shared worldwide through TV appearances on Oprah and other national morning shows, as well as her TEDx talk on how to find your dream job without ever looking at your resume, which I absolutely love. So if you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation because the work that you're doing is something that I value on just a really deeply personal level. I spent about 15 years of my life in tech, but in the HR side of technology. And so I feel like I have a little bit of a a more awareness maybe around like kind of the inner workings of the way businesses are and often how people are feeling about their place in those businesses. And so when I watched your TED talk for the first time, and I've watched it a couple of times because I think there were just so many things that I kind of wanted to come back to. What really stood out to me is that much like myself, like I, while I stayed sort of in an industry over the years, just to make ends meet, um, you know, I did kind of bounce around and try to find that purpose. And and you speak to your own story with that a little bit and really having these big goals and and hopes and dreams for yourself in, in a realistic way where you were driving towards that. But you've landed as an author and a career coach after, um, you know, a stint going to Broadway and doing right. uh, it really kind of another uh, a few other varieties of roles that you've taken on. So what really inspired you to find the path that you're on now as a coach and author? Well, I, I mean, it was probably like one of the most divinely guided periods in my life. If you believe in that, like I I just, you know, I had come off of a literal nervous breakdown. Like my, you know, my parents wanted to put me in, in a mental institution to heal. And I didn't allow it because I felt like it would be an identity for me for the rest of my life. So I was like determined that I was going to figure this out on my own. And part of my breakdown was, you know, I worked really hard to make it in show business. I was on the musical theater side, Broadway, New York. And, you know, it's like so many industries, but it's a particularly unfair one. You know what I mean? Like hard work doesn't mean (laughs) success. Yeah. It's so random. And so, you know, I just felt like I could put another decade into it and still have nothing to show for it. And I had not gone right out of college and gotten a job because I went after my dream. So here I was with no resume to speak of how I was going to change careers at this point. I just didn't know what I was going to do. So anyway, have this breakdown, heal myself, 
through the course in miracles. Are you familiar? Marianne Williamson speaks about it a lot. And so my, my wife actually just, um, I think listened to it on audiobook and was telling me to get my head into it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here comes another person. I mean, Marianne Williamson is the best known interpreter of the course in miracles. The course in miracles for your listeners, viewers who don't know is a psycho spiritual self-study course. And it comes with this humongous book that, I mean, you really can't, really get through it. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's almost like written in another language. There's so much, it is English, but there's just so much spiritual language in it. That it was very dense. It's very dense. <laughs> dense is the word, but the part that is more accessible, and I am getting to answering your question is the 365 day course. So you basically, nowadays we're so used to online courses now, right? So I think you actually can take this online now, but the the Course in Miracles is really, I look at it as there's the book, there's the teacher's manual, but there's this 365 day course. And if I were to give you the cliff notes, it's this, there's two thoughts, fear or love. That's it. That's what I took away from it. So Marianne Williamson will say it's a course on forgiveness. I'm like, miss that lesson. What I got was the (laughs) love or fear And so here I was, someone who lived from fear. And in my recovery of my life, I was trying to learn how to love, love myself, how to live from love. And in that period, I had this intuitive inkling to call an old friend, an old acting mentor, and he had become a coach. I'd never heard of such a thing. He thought he could help me figure out what to do next. So I became a client. And within less than two years, I realized I wanted to do what he was doing. So to answer your question, it wasn't a decision as much as it was following this path and putting one foot in front of the other, listening to my intuition and this one phone call being like a watershed moment of finding my next career. And I I wish, I mean, when I do listen to my intuition, it often is fantastic. It doesn't always come through as clear as during a period when you're on your knees, just like willing to try anything. Begging for it. (laughs) Begging for it. Exactly. So I got to, you know, make sure I stay attuned because it's not always that, that available to me. But, you know, the times in my life where I have followed that, you know, thing you can't explain, but you know, you have to do it has been successful moments. And I grew up with a father who hated his job. So I knew what it was like to live with someone who hated what they were doing. So I went for my dream and to have it not work out. That was a terrible, you know, like life shattering disappointment. How Mm -hmm. could it not work out? I wasn't doing something I hated. I did the opposite of my father. So So I've had both experiences, right? So that's what really what, what centered me then on helping people figure out what to do with their life was just that I don't believe anyone should suffer to make a living. Oh gosh. You're speaking to my soul, Laura. I appreciate that so much. And I am so grateful that you went there right away. This is what I seek with this show is for people to show up and be vulnerable and be ready to say the reality of it. And when you speak to the fact that you wanted to do something from a place of love and that you you witnessed somebody have a a relationship with their job that wasn't fulfilling and honestly in a lot of ways is harmful right like if we aren't fulfilled it's one thing you can be complacent you can be bored right but like when you have a a sheer dread of waking up in the morning and going to work like i've been there more than once and so and taking that anger out on your family or what a thousand percent right <laughs> yeah know? and it takes it takes away from the joy in your life outside of work to your point like that impact proliferates and the thing that i with regards to that that i think is so 
common for people is that we just sometimes act like that's the way that it's expected to be like, well, who likes their job, you know, or what are the chances that I'll get to do the thing that I love and actually have that be the thing that pays the bills. And that's something that you talk about a bit in your, in your Ted talk. And I will say I consumed other content than your Ted talk, but the thing that like really just kept like churning in my head were a lot of the insights that came from that because you had made a point that um, career satisfaction doesn't come from what you do. It comes from who you get to be while you're doing that. And I just thought that was such a profound point and observation. And I'd love if you could share a little bit more about how you got to a point where you recognize that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not the job itself that's going to bring you the satisfaction. I mean, yes, you know, some, some tasks that you have to do are more enjoyable than others, but your job allows you to be a particular kind of person. So if you don't like to be the person who has to, you know, force people to part with their money, or, you know, you don't like the product you're selling, or, you know, you don't like the people you work with, like, who are you being every day? Yeah. You know, and that that's where the joy comes from. Like if you get to connect with people, if you get to feel useful, if you get to feel like you're using your your SS, your special sauce, I call it, you know, your your magic superpower, that's when you feel connected and alive. And that's when people have job satisfaction. It's not just the salary or you know, the perks, it's eventually those things kind of die out as being wonderful and fun. And you're like, yeah, okay, so what? But I hate everybody and I hate everything. And it's the point of diminishing returns. And the, it, right. there's a really big difference between the extrinsic motivators, which you just mentioned, your salary, the perks, and even honestly, the people can be an, an extrinsic motivator. I've stayed at jobs and felt like, oh, because these people are here or this leader is here. But your internal dialogue doesn't rely on those things to sustain satisfaction or joy or any of that. It's like, how do I feel separate of all of the external factors? Exactly. Because those external factors can be, you know, tricky too. They can be the golden handcuffs, you know, as people call them, like keep you there longer than you want to be. But it's really, it really is what you're saying, like waking up every day and being like, Am I dreading this or am I looking forward to it? Is there, you know, do I like, do I like me in what I have to do at my job or do I not like me? And so, I mean, how I, how I came to that, I just think was, um, you know, seeing so much of it, experiencing it myself and just, I've just sort of been a student all the time of like, what makes people happy at work, you know, and and it's also your criteria for success. Like, what is your criteria for happiness? I always, I always ask my would-be customers that. I'm like, if you're going to work with me as a coaching client, I'm like, well, what's your criteria for success? Or what's your criteria for happiness? And most people can't answer that. So that invites those deeper questions of like, who am I? What do I really want? Who do I want to be? You know, who do, who do I want to be? Because you can, you can change who you want to be. I love that you said that. It's... philosophically very much aligned. I I was very literally asking myself, who the fuck am I? And the questions that you just said, like, what do I want? What makes me happy? Like, do I still want to be this person that I am today? If we're not introspective enough to ask those questions and not even just introspective enough, but willing to sit with the discomfort of those answers, if they're not what we want them to be, like, that's the hardest part. I'm literally in this moment right now that we are recording in the last 
let's say 72 hours, I've made the decision to be working with a coach and I had been resistant to it. And I was just like, I don't think that that's like what I need. I talk to coaches all the time. I know that there's value there. It's not a matter of if I believe that it's, it helps people or it's something that we often can need, but it was taking me from this place of, I know what I'm getting to, I'm, I don't know what the result of this will be ultimately. Part of that is my own lack of clarity. And the other part of it is that it means that I have to change what I'm doing. And even though what I'm doing isn't producing the results that I want, I am fine with the way that I function on a day-to-day basis now. And it's like, but if you're fine, are you fulfilled? You know, and I think that that's part of the challenge is that we get comfortable with the discomfort that we exist in to the point where it doesn't feel so uncomfortable anymore. And then when we're kind of, as you said earlier, like with regard to divine timing, I've said in therapy on numerous occasions, I feel like the universe gave me a violent shove into the present moment. It was like, what are you going to do now? You know, and I think when you speak to that and, and being challenged to listen to that intuition and that and our heart and our soul about what is right and what's not right for us, it really is so much about like that discussion you're going to have with yourself before you even have the capacity to make the decision to get somebody else involved in it. Yeah. And, and it's nice. It's just those small steps, you know, so congrats on hiring a coach. Thank you. <laughs> it, you know, you're going to sit with the questions and have some guidance through the maze. And, you know, it's the sitting with the questions some and the answers that can be so uncomfortable. And most people seek pleasure, run from discomfort, run from pain. So that's why most people don't change. Right. <laughs> right. So like the pain has to get bad enough for someone to finally pay attention and go, oh, maybe I better go to the doctor <laughs> or yeah. maybe I better do something about this. Right. So. Um, but we can, I mean, if we're willing to address the pain when it shows up in small ways, we would make our lives so much easier and we won't need that shove, but those shoves happen. They happen for a reason. They make you pay attention. And, you know, I, I'm great. I'm grateful for them. Cause that's when I get people to, <laughs> to talk to me about this, but yeah, you know, it's just, you know, as I said, this at the beginning of my Ted TEDx talk that you know, our ancestors, our grandparents and great grandparents would be like, you know, happy at work, like happy at work is that you put food on the table. Right. So we have evolved. And I think for sometimes when you're saying people go, well, that's how it is. No one expects to like their job. That's just, you know, that's just life. We we've evolved as a species. We have, you know, we, we don't live in caves anymore and we don't have to hunt our own food. And, you know, as there are things that we get more of, we want more of. So yeah. It's just how we are. And then it's, you know, then on this planet, on the planet, we have to be aware of how responsible we're being about when we want more. That's a whole other topic. But I just want people to know, like, it's okay to want more. Like, it is okay. Yes. You know, you've evolved. And yes, that might have been the job track you were on after college. or You may have gotten your dream and now you're like, eh, no big deal. Now what am I going to do? Um, we evolve. And so change is going to always be there. Oh, that's such a great message. I, I could not agree with you more on that. And I feel like one of the things that can bother me a lot when I, because I've been in this boat too, where I'm miserable at a job. I'm not necessarily making the changes to get out of it. Like you said, the golden handcuffs salary for me was a really big thing. I graduated in 08 at the peak of the recession with a film degree. 
hmm, cool. That was super. <laughs> what <laughs> like are you going to do with that? <laughs> yeah. Like I had a mound of student loan debt. And so, and because I was in the States at the time and healthcare wasn't yet, like you couldn't be on your parents' healthcare. You had to get your own right. at the time. And so it was like my entire like start of my career was driven out of fear that I would end up in severe medical debt if heaven forbid something happened to me. There was no like rational reason that I needed to be like, oh my gosh, what about my medical conditions? It was just, I know that if I don't have the financial security or even just the insurance in terms of financial security to take care of myself, then I could end up in a really worse position and I don't want to take that risk. And so a big part of me going into tech, and I always say I fell ass backwards into it, was just that I had enough sort of transferable skill sets from things that I already knew how to do to make me qualified in that role. And then I started seeing increases in money that were really exciting to me because I started making like $12 an hour at my first job and gas was $5 a gallon and I was driving a hundred miles a day. And it was like, I was losing money to work. So then when I'm starting to get paid the big bucks, I'm like, yes, I will do this. I don't care how miserable I am. And it's like, no, you do care how miserable you are. You just have money in the bank while you're doing it. You know, get there yet. You just didn't feel the pain deeply enough. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things that I'm curious from your perspective is, you know, when you've gone through the process of sort of feeling that pain. Um, when you felt like you maybe weren't making the progress you wanted to make, what kept you curious and engaged enough to get to the next chapter? Beside, because the drive is one thing, right? Like we we want it. And I think that wanting is such a, it's probably the most critical piece of it, but it's not the only piece. Well, I think that, I think that inherently, like I can look at this in hindsight and inherently I knew that, I had something to give. I didn't know what, I couldn't name it. You know, oh, okay, I could stand up in front of people. I could take questions on the fly. I could do improv. I could sing, (laughs) you know, but there was like, what the heck was I going to do with that? But I somewhere deep down knew, like I was a capable person. It was, you know, I could learn quickly. I, you know, can pick up things quickly. I would figure out, something that I could advance in, but all that I had on my plate, if you took away what the acting was, I knew how to wait on tables and could probably run a restaurant because, you know, I, I so couldn't stand the status quo where I worked that I created a training program for the restaurant that I worked at. So I actually, unbeknownst to me, was already starting my journey in advancing systems and advancing people and advancing human systems creating a training company for the restaurant that I worked at because I couldn't stand that they made everyone shadow me for three days and then called them a waiter. And I was like, no, that's not good enough. So I think, you know, there's something intrinsically in each of us, whether it's an opinion, whether it's a value system, whether it's knowing you have something to give, even if you can name what it is, that, that propels us forward and keeps us from giving up, hopefully. But I think ultimately it comes down to purpose. And I wasn't clear on my purpose, you know, when this was all going on. And I think sometimes people wondering what their purpose is can be a painful inquiry because you're looking for like the skies to open up and it's like, use me, tell me what to do. You know, those messages don't always come so clear. But 
I know that no one can have a purpose alone in a vacuum. It's how you affect other people. So even if you're in a job that you can't stand, you could still be purposeful in your actions with other people. You could still be supportive. You could still be someone who advances others. You know, I'm not saying at the cost to yourself, but you know, it's it's within our context of relationship with other people that we'll start to find what our purpose is. Like I, I believe everyone has a ripple effect, right? The people yeah. get into your space, into your world, and there's something about you that you cause within other people. That's your purpose. It's not like a thing, a mission, I'm gonna create computers or I'm gonna, you know, come up with the best coaching program on the planet. That's a mission. That's not a purpose. A purpose is the that just intrinsic value that you have, the way you see the world, the way you touch others, and how we turn that into your special sauce to move you into a career or a box, you know, the, uh, or the vehicle for that purpose, you know, that's a whole other trajectory. But I think it really starts with figuring out the who instead of the what, not what you're going to do, but who are you and what do you have to give? And I mean, one of those other moments that cracked me open as a someone in my 20s who was extremely depressed was I just had this inkling that I should do something for somebody else, like to get out of my own pain, like go volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I brought food to shut in elder people and people with AIDS. And I just delivered food around the city. And here I was, you know, 20 something anorexic, depressed girl running with grocery bags, going to visit old people. But I had some of the most transformative experiences of my life. Um, well, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Well, I was going to say, please tell me more about that. Okay. <laughs> so All right, so there's it. this woman, there's this woman named Olive and she's long past now, but I knocked on this woman's door to deliver food on the tiny studio apartment on the Upper West Side of New York. And she could go away, go away. And something told me to go in anyway. What was I going to do with all these groceries, you know? So I come in and I put down the groceries. She's telling me to go away. She's under the covers. And I, over across the room, I saw a bottle of nail polish. And I said, you know, Olive, when was the last time you did your nails? And she sat up in her bed and like she went from like gray ashen color to pink. And she was very interested in this. So I did her nails and I came every three weeks, two weeks, and I did this woman's nails and she changed my life. She took me outside of my own pain. She helped me connect you know, with her and hear about her life as a single woman in Manhattan. She lit, she worked at, I think, Bonwit Teller or one of the big department stores. She had no children, no siblings, never married. These were all things that I was on my way to doing. I never wanted to get married. I never wanted to have kids. I just wanted to be in control of my own destiny. And honest to God, I think I married and have kids because I met Olive. And I was like, no, that, I don't, I don't think I'm being shown the life that I, that she chose that I was choosing and I don't think I want that life, you know, but at the same, I was one of four people at her funeral. I showed up one day after I'd been away at summer stock and she, her apartment was closed up. She was gone. And I, I would beg the doorman, like, tell me what, like where, what happened to Olive? And he said, she's at such and such a hospital. And I found her at the hospital and I wasn't next of kin, but they let me see her. And here's this woman strapped to a bed, screaming, completely disoriented in dementia. And I had no experience with death and dying at this point, but I just said to her, it's okay. You can stop fighting. You can go. And the next day she died. So I, it was just like this 
otherworldly experience. Wow. But that all came of knowing somewhere deep down, like get out of your own pain, go do something for somebody else. And it really began my journey to eventually finding my career. I eventually became a minister and, you know, have counseled people through some tough times, but, um, you know, Olive gets some credit for that. (laughs) Wow. I I, thank you so much for sharing that. It's so impactful to hear it. And the, one of the things that stands out to me in that too, is that your recognition in that moment that not only did you need to kind of step away from your own pain and um, find a way to navigate that, but that you were observant in a way that connected you to Olive, that you were able to just see something in her apartment. And it was that one tiny decision that you made, such a seemingly small moment in your life, right? But like you said, that ripple effect of that decision to just ask her about painting her nails, right? Like that's just such a, it's so representative of how sometimes we can't possibly anticipate what that ripple effect looks like. Um, And we have so many moments, I think, in life where it's like, well, what if I did this or what if I did that? And we exist in that state of preemptive anxiety and then we never do the thing. Right. The worst thing that can happen in doing the thing in a lot of cases is that maybe it doesn't work out the way that we planned. But sometimes, and and this is probably super cliche to say, but it's like, it works out better than you planned. And you, I think our desire, as you said, you know, wanting the control, wanting to know what's going to happen. It's like, that's all an illusion. Like our, our idea that we control most of this is, is sincerely not realistic. And I had to learn that the hard way myself, you know, like I was really slapped in the face with reality when I lost my mom and I was leaving this really abusive relationship and having the, the awareness to be like, this isn't how I saw my life going. But in those same moments, I was lucky enough to meet my now wife who I met as a friend and it was super random. And it was just like, this is a person that's here who's supportive of me. And I need that right now in this moment. And it translated into such a much bigger, more significant part of my life. And so it's like that open-mindedness of, I have desires, I have wants, I have expectations of my life, but don't hold so tightly onto that expectation that you're not open to the other possibilities that are before you. Yeah, because you you really don't know. Even when you think you know, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And definitely my career is is an example of that. You know, I I knew and I worked so hard and you know, wasn't getting the results that I wanted. And it's like, but at the same time, like I never could have imagined the rest of the story. I never could. I mean, I did more TV and media and you know, star quality things after I wasn't an actor anymore. And I never could have predicted any of those things. And yet ironic, not ironically, but interestingly, everything I did as an actor prepared me for a life of serving people from a stage or from behind a camera or whatever, like that could not have been better preparation. You know, I Um, love that you point that out because it's something that you say also in your Ted talk about how um, it's, 
the formula for kind of getting to that next stage. I, I'm not remembering it off the top of my head and I thought I wrote it down, but I'm like not seeing it in my notes. I it's imagine past, you know this. <laughs> something, something that you did in the past mixed in with the resume of the present often equals the next step, like something you abandon along the way because, you know, you outgrew it or it wasn't realistic or you tried it and it didn't work. It still has some significance in the who, right? Not the Mm -hmm. what, not like what you're going to do, but who you got to be or who skills. And that mixed with your, you know, the, the hard skills and the resume building things that you have now can be parlayed into something new. Yeah. And and I'm, a, I'm an example of that. And certainly a lot of my clients are too. It's like that part that you left on the side of the road for the paycheck or for whatever, or for life circumstances or whatever, yeah. there's still a part of you that needs to be included in that. Like yeah. one of my favorite like movie lines of all time, um, George Clooney, and is it, was it up or up in? Oh, up in the air. Up in the air, up in the air, right. Up was the cartoon movie. So up in the air, he looks at the, I should know the actor's name because he's really famous too, but he looks at the guy and is like, looks down his resume. This guy's being let go from his job and and George Clooney's the consultant who fires everybody. He looks down his resume and he goes, how much did they give you to give up on your dream? Because at the bottom of his resume, probably under special skills was like chef. Yeah. Because he had been a wanted to be a chef. So that line like killed me in that movie. I I don't, I mean, I remember that movie well because there's a lot of good things about that movie, but that line, like I haven't seen a movie in a long time that had seared a line into me like that. Yeah. <laughs> How much did they offer you to give up on your dream? And I was like, wow. It's so true. And look, money's real, money's a real issue in people's lives, you know. So I don't fault anyone for sometimes having to do things for the money, but you can't forget that piece of you that you left on the side of the road for the money. It, it'll eventually want back in. That's a really profound point. And I got goosebumps as you were saying that too, because it I I think what you mentioned too is like it's abandoning that part of ourselves and something that I've learned in the years of doing therapy now is also just that importance of like reintegrating to other parts of ourselves and really understanding that, um, you know, when we're younger, we do make decisions and not even necessarily younger, but at points in our life where we make decisions based on those circumstances, what's best in a given moment or what we perceive to be maybe be best in a given moment, but might not be wise. And to have the opportunity to reflect on that more objectively and give yourself space with it, give yourself grace to acknowledge maybe the things that you could have done differently. But it also allows us, I think, that opportunity for growth that you're speaking about because we then can go into that next set of circumstances in our life without that sort of acting as a barrier or something holding us back because we carry shame around it. So do you feel like a big part of also delivering on your purpose and, or even just understanding it is allowing yourself to access like what it is within you that is holding you back? Yes. You know, what's holding you back because there might be limits or fears, but also something, as you mentioned, like the therapy process that a lot of people discover in a therapy process or coaching. Um, Something that I call like motivating drivers or vows, you know, like there's, there's something that you made a promise about when you were young, usually happens in the teens. It could be before, it could be a little bit after in college. Like you'll say, I'll never be like my 
father. Like mm. for me, I'll never be like my father. None of his three kids worked corporate gigs like him. We just saw something that we no one wanted their hands on that. Yep. Um, or you make a vow, like I'll never be poor. Or I'll show that teacher who told me I was stupid. You know, so we, we make these vows and sometimes those vows help us to make decisions that are very good to us, to us and for us up to a point. Mm-hmm. If then, if you're in a scenario where you're, you know, you're doubting what you're doing or you don't feel good about what you're doing, you have to look back and go, what was the driving motivator? What was the vow? Because you have likely outgrown the need for that coping mechanism, but you're still very much operating from that. Like, you know, you're still a PC and I need you to be a Mac. You know, you're, yeah, still, yeah. <laughs> on that, you're still on that operating system. Yep. And, and you, it, we're blind to it. That, that's like one of the biggest discoveries I've made in working with people that just, it still blows my mind, like how blind we can be to our own motivators. And so when you say, you know, you know, sit with the stuff that's not working, it's, it's, it's not just that sometimes it's more hidden. So you mm-hmm. have to look at like, well, okay, so what's my modus operandi? You know, what, what's driving me to do what I've done until this point? Was it a vow? You know, was it like something about money or something about not being like somebody else or showing some? It's usually about proving something to yourself or to somebody else. And once you have that recognition, you never have to prove anything again. <laughs> like you really need your motivation needs to move beyond it being about making anybody else wrong or showing anybody. Yeah. Um, that's where the healthy motivation will then come in for your purpose. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I absolutely love that explanation. And I appreciate you challenging me on that, too, because I think that that's part of the dialogue where it's like we often sort of have the idea in our head of what it means, um, like how we get there or even just like from a self-limiting belief perspective, what's holding us back. And then we kind of hone in on that and we don't give ourselves the space to also recognize that there might be other contributing factors, which, which you're pointing out. And I think that I, that point about proving something to ourselves or to somebody else is just so spot on. Um, because for my own example, you know, I felt like I graduated, I had no money. I was in debt and I was like, every time I would get a new job that was higher paying and had like maybe more clout in terms of the title or whatever it is, responsibility. It's like, I was proving to myself that like I was more worthy than the last job that I was at. And so it's like, I spent a lot of years trying to convince myself that I was good enough to be in the positions that I wanted or the positions that I was in. And that whole time, it didn't really even matter because I would still leave that job miserable wishing that I was doing something that actually felt fulfilling. Mm. Yeah. And that's how it'll be. If you're just doing it to fulfill that vow, it, it's not going to, it'll be satisfying in small little like hits, like an addict, you know, yes. because you have to keep going back for more of that recognition or more of that proof yeah, um, or whatever got you there in the first place. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like whoever said, you know, don't bring your, don't bring your life to your work, you know, like keep your, your, personal life separate, but it's not possible. You know, people are, we're people first. It's, it's actually recognizing within an organization that you, you have to deal with people that will bring you success (laughs) in your organization. Right. What a novel concept. Um, What a novel concept. They're not cogs in a wheel. They're people. Right. Well, and so some, 
the fact that you just said that I think is really relevant right now. Um, obviously because of what you do, you're aware of this, but I think there's like holistically, there's a lot of change happening in the world around job satisfaction, uh, career ambition, and things like that. As I mentioned, I talk to a lot of coaches. I have friends who are coaches. I have so many uh, contacts in the HR space because of the work that I've done over the years. And the dialogue is really about transforming the hierarchical approach to our careers in the way that it was structured, probably when, you know, our parents and their parents' generations, et cetera, you know, it was like, you've got the boss man and then you've got the other people who are sort of just the, the subordinates. Min- yes, exactly. And it's like, even being in an environment in my life where it's like, don't kind of don't speak unless spoken to, um, your opinion is relevant when we tell you it's relevant. Uh, it doesn't matter what your professional experience is or what you know to be true. It's really about the optics and the status and the desire for people to glom onto power in a way that is satisfying to them instead of like building a business around what the possibilities are if you take the best parts of all the people that you have and allow them to shine. So in in the work that you do, or just in your personal perspective, um, probably a combination of both, um, what do you feel is really important for people to consider or understand, um, you know, as either business owners or entrepreneurs who maybe are, are building something around them with other people and the importance of not losing sight of that humanity. Like what advice would you offer to somebody who's in, I guess, some sort of leadership role is a more succinct way to say it um, for how they can maintain or build structure around that core humanity instead of like just the business objectives. Well, I think one of the biggest motivators for people is contribution. You know, like people want to feel like they're contributing to something and con- that their that their opinion matters, that their voice is heard that they're touching something that they believe in, you know, whatever the final product is or final idea is. So, you know, as a leader, just making sure that people are contributing and contributing how they want to be contributing. Yeah. Because it's so frustrating, you know, as an employee who wants to, you know, get the opportunity to do certain things and is constantly being shut out from doing it. You know, that's when you're going to look for another opportunity eventually. For sure. Well, it's so deep. It's, it's demotivating, but it's also a little degrading sometimes too, because when you feel like you don't have that sense of autonomy, it, you lack the ability to kind of, you mentioned early on self-love. It's like you internalize that when you feel like you don't have autonomy, at least in my experience. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're someone who thrives on independence or creativity and, you know, that's just constantly being dampered and shut out, like stop stomping on a little fire. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think as a leader more and more, you know, I've also, I'm called in as an executive coach, right? So I'll have a senior leadership person as my coachee and more and more these leaders are being told that they need to be more Coach-like. So as I've been coaching more and more senior leaders in organizations, and the the demand is that the coach help the senior leader be more coach-like, to be more inclusive of the people on their team, to use people more, to not feel like they have to be the buck stops here, like everything relies on me as the leader. And 
you know, I often joke that when I'm teaching other people to be coached like that, it's ego reduction therapy. Like you need, you need to reduce your ego. <laughs> yeah. I, one of the things that I will say constantly when I'm in environments like that is like, check your ego at the door because it doesn't serve anybody to be leading from that place. And it restricts the opportunities. Well, in, you know, conventional old wisdom, it's like letting someone else have the answers or letting someone else have the spotlight takes away from you. And yet leadership, you know, as we're trying to do it today, there's still plenty of people who do it that way. But, you know, we're trying to evolve leaders to the place of like they, you know, and I'll say I've said I've said this to other coaches when I'm training them, too. It's like you're the gold isn't in your answers for people. The gold is in your questions for people. Oh, I love that. And, and they get to be the star in answering their own questions and no one's going to say, you know, they're going to love you just as much because you yeah. help them get there. You know, it's not like totally. you have to be the answer person. Um, but actually I love it when my clients say, I hate you for asking that. That means I really hit the, hit the nail on the head. <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah. Well, cause, cause that's it, right. It's like, we're in those moments forced to challenge our own perceptions of ourselves or our beliefs and even just the way that we operate. And I imagine as executive leaders that to rethink that is really difficult because it is, especially if you're an executive leader of like a larger organization or, or group that it isn't just as simple as that we're going to change this model and we're going to implement this new thing. And it's just going to work the way we want it to work. Like I've worked at companies that are 10 people and I've worked at Amazon. So like there is, it's run the gamut. And I've seen the variety of leadership that, you know, people want to motivate their employees a lot of times, but it does involve consistently readjusting or, and even if maybe even it's not adjustment, it's the willingness to adjust if needed. It's the openness to understanding that what you've done might not be the thing that you need to keep doing. And I'm sure in your career, as with in mine, you just see people just they they want to just keep doing the thing that they've done and they they feel confident because they've, you know, let's say they got from point A to point B and they're like, see, this worked, it works. And it's like, okay. And yes, you could get from point B to point C doing the same thing. And you might get even the same results, but are you content to just stay the same? Or do you want to, as you said earlier, evolve? And I think that is just such the critical point in all of this is that if we are not open to our own evolution or helping the other people around us evolve, then we're just I mean, what's the point? Like humanity in and of itself is evolutionary. And that's like the mindset that I operate from. And I think that sounds like that's the same place where you exist as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, if there's my, my last name, Fortgang means forward motion or moving forward in Austrian German. I love that. Yeah. And I, I just thought it was a perfect, it's my husband's name, but I took it very quickly. Yeah. That's a great name. Moving forward. I love it. So but it it's like, I think it's just, it's, you know, nature, nature goes through the seasons and the cycles, but you know, when spring comes, it's about growing and then evolving into a summer something. And then it's the harvest, you know, so, but people are the same way, you know, just the way we kind of feel hibernational in wintertime, we don't feel like doing much, you know, we, we evolve on a cycle too. And I just think, you know, they also say like people get into their first house and within five to seven years, they move, right. We just, we have cycles in life and it's respecting those cycles. And yes, you can outgrow a job, 
most definitely. Like it was a challenge in the beginning and it was interesting. And it was exciting. And then then you're a couple of years in and you're like, oh my God, I'm bored to tears. And that, there's nothing wrong with you. You're evolving. Right. <laughs> and, you know, when we fight that evolution, we just end up sick and miserable, you know? So it's just, it's important to keep growing and moving. I think, um, I, I definitely come from that place. Like, you know, I'll often compare it to, um, you own a car, you're going to do regular maintenance on your car if you're smart. And that way you won't have a big breakdown, but the people who don't do regular maintenance on their car have to have a huge breakdown in order to spend the money or to do the fix. And I compare that to people and I compare that to relationships. Like you have to do the maintenance. And when you're talking about a career, the maintenance is keeping that resume up to date, but also keeping the skills going. And, you know, if something interests you taking on a special project and it might be a hobby outside of work, that's okay too. But um, I just think that, you know, when you stop learning is when everything atrophies. Yes. keep growing and keep evolving. And, you know, and now that I'm a student of the, the elderly, cause in the last seven years I've dealt with my father passing away and my mother's very much not the person that she was. And it's like, it's so, if you don't lose it, you, you, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And so, I mean, while we can do it, we should be taking full advantage of this crazy thing we call the work and life. Yes. Oh gosh. I feel like that's just such an important point to make too, is that we have a limited amount of time and spending that time doing things that don't make us feel good, doing things that, um, you know, create chaos in our lives or undue stress. It's just not serving us. And it comes back to what you originally said too, around finding a way to also be of service to other people. And I think that it has that really beautiful effect in the way that we show up for other people and the transformation, as you said earlier, that happens for us in showing up for other people. And when, when we do that, when we open ourselves to those opportunities to bring forth, you know, energy that we're contributing to somebody else's growth, that it also, whether or not we anticipate it, like we're seeing these changes in ourselves. And I actually just had a conversation with a guest a couple of days ago who um, wrote a book that actually just came out and and you might enjoy it. It's called My Name is Love by Troy Hadid. And he was speaking to the fact that, you know, every conversation that we have will be something that transforms us in some way, some much greater than others, obviously. But when we interact with each other and we put connection and love into those relationships, it is undeniable that like some sort of shift starts to happen. And this gets back to what you said about the ripple effect. It could be the smallest thing. I noticed that when I'm walking down the street some days, I smile more at people and I get more smiles back. And I'm like, why am I just not always smiling at people? I mean, maybe I'm not in the mood, but like- It's a great social experiment. People that are listening, just go out and try that. It is amazing. And it's amazing what it does for you to smile more at people. And then you get a smile back and you you get this energy. Yes. And um, I can totally relate to that because when I was in the depths of not being well in my mind, I lived in New York City. I'm walking down, you know, crowded Fifth Avenue. Oh, yeah. And I noticed that the moodier and meaner I felt, the more people bumped into me. And then 
you know, and that makes you piss more. Oh, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and then I did a social experiment of like, all right, can I park the sea of people by being in a, a loving energy? And I did. Like I could walk down the street, no one bumped into me, you know, people were smiling. And I invite anyone who's listening to try what you just talked about because it'll change your day. Totally. And also if you're doing it in Manhattan, more power to you because that's like all that's next level. You're like going to the pros immediately. Exactly. That's like high level athletic stuff to smile at strangers in New York City. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> well, and and I really appreciate you saying that, too, because it's something that's so easy. We can all do it. We all have the ability to smile at somebody and you don't know what people are experiencing. They might have just left a work day where they felt miserable and like nobody saw them or heard them and you can turn their day around. And it's not like they're going to necessarily go home and have this massive revelation about how their life has changed. But it's like that little feeling of goodness in the world that just got passed through from one person to another. It, that level of connectivity, I think, is what starts us on that journey of being able to ask ourselves, you know, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Do I like who I am? Do I like the way that I'm showing up in the world? And to your point, it's like, if I'm miserable and I'm showing up that way and people are seeing that and they're imbibing that energy from me, then, you know, what opportunities am I potentially missing? Because I'm so consumed by the, I don't even want to say negativity, but the lack of joy that I have in my own life. But the negativity is like, it's addictive. You know, we you, you remember the negative things. Your brain gets an imprint from the adrenaline of, of a scary thing or a traumatic thing. Yeah. You remember it better than the good times. It's like, we choose, like our brain is so wired to choose the negative. From a survival mechanism, which is like so anti or so counterintuitive based on the world we right. live in now. Right. Right. And, and it's, and it is very fear driven too, you know, like when, but it's about, a lot of it's about power. Sometimes we, when we feel powerless, it feels more powerful to be angry than to be um, nice. Wow. Yeah. That's such a good point. So when, you know, like they say, hurt people, hurt people. So, you know, you try to remember when you're going through life that, you know, everyone's been traumatized in some way. Everything's going, everyone's going through something. And then we all choose. We choose it to harden us or we choose it to soften us. And, you know, and that, I, I don't think there's a better call to action for our times. Um, you know, while we're in such a divisive, scary world, it's like, well, you know, anger ha- can fuel a lot of things, but, um, it also is a choice and oh. can talk to you for hours. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, these are all hard earned lessons. <laughs> you're, you're, it's so true though. And, and I, you know, as we're kind of rounding out the conversation here, I, I really genuinely thank you so much for having this chat with me, Laura. I feel like you said at the very beginning, you know, divine timing, if you kind of believe in that sort of thing, I I most definitely do. And um, if we are able to continue conversing um, into the future, I'm sure that that will show up more in those conversations. But what I feel in this moment right now, and it is so important for me to share with you is that I needed this conversation today more than I really even understood. And so I have just a tremendous amount of gratitude for the work that you're doing and how you're showing up um, in your the way you're doing things professionally because of what motivates you to do that. But on a personal level, 
the energy that you bring, the intention that you bring, and the desire to help people understand those core parts of themselves is really inspirational to me. Um, and I think is just going to really resonate with listeners. And I just, I want to hold some space for that because it really is a moment in this exact day that it goes to show that you don't really know what moment's going to impact you in a certain way. And this is one of those. Well, thank you. And thank you for giving me the platform to, and the opportunity to share with you. So good to meet you. Absolutely. And I, you know, before we hop off here, I would love, if, is there anything that you'd like to share with listeners that you feel is, is important if they're at that crossroads in their life? I know we've tackled sort of the giving yourself space to ask the questions and, and sit with the the discomfort of the questions and the answers. But beyond that, is there anything you feel like we haven't touched on that you might want to share? We touched on it when we talked about the Course in Miracles. And I and I'll I'll leave this as a final thought of like just always look at where where you're what you're choosing. Choosing fear or choosing love. And I know love can sound like so ooh woo wishy washy oh woo woo unicorn and rainbows. But I think of it as like you know, think of it as like fear and light, you know, what's, what's lightness, what's light, what's a, a flame that keeps burning stronger, you know, and we don't want to feed the fuel of the, of the fear. Yes. Yeah. There's a parable, which I'm, you know, I'm going to paraphrase wildly because I don't remember it, but it's, it's an, an, a native American parable of, I think a grandfather sitting next to his grandson and hearing the wolves howl over the horizon. And I don't, I don't remember the question that the grandson asked, but the, basically the lesson that the grandfather imparts is you have to choose which wolf to feed. Mm-hmm. The hungry yes. wolf, you know, and the fear or the strong and enlightened wolf. And I leave you with that fear or love. Those are the two basic thoughts. I bring it down to people's career choices. You know, did they choose it out of fear? Did they choose it out of knowing what they're, their purposes and their special sauces and what they have to give. So absolutely. Well, let's leave you. it there. Yes. Thank you so much for that. And if anybody wants to learn more about you and the work that you're doing, they can visit your website, which is laurabermanfortgang.com. Is there anywhere else you'd like for people to find you or anywhere else you'd like to point them? Go look up that TEDx talk under my name. There's no one else with yes. my name. <laughs> and you can also look up now what coaching.com, but any of my websites lead to each other. And I'll also leave for you, Nikki, if you want to put it in the show notes, a, a free download. That's a five-step guide to clarity. So we can Definitely. get you on your road to clarity. We'll give you a link for that. Yeah, absolutely. That would be amazing. I appreciate that. Clarity is the core topic of mind for me lately. So um, I appreciate that immensely. And Laura, you've just been an absolute uh, treasure in terms of this conversation and like I said, from the very beginning, the energy that you've brought and I appreciate you and the work that you're doing and Thank the fact you. that you are helping people find that answer to the question of who we are. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side.
Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.